want you to turn to John chapter 3. I had a real struggle picking what to preach on this morning. And um, I picked about three other messages, but I kept coming back to this. John chapter 3, one verse, and you probably guessed it already. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus and how we thank you and we praise you, dear God, for what you've done for us in paying our sin debt on Calvary. Thank you for the wonderful salvation you give to all that put their faith and trust in Jesus to save them. And I pray, Father, you'd speak to hearts today, whether it be over the Internet or right here in the auditorium, any without the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would see their need for him and turn and trust him today. We pray for believers because, Lord, we realize getting saved, that's one thing, but there's a job to do, and that's reach more that need to be saved. So, God, I pray that you deal with our hearts and answer the question in our hearts, why missions? Why missions? Lord, teach us today and convict us, and we'll thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this, of course, is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, there's a word in that that's so important. It's the word world. For God so loved the world. The constraint of God's love is he loved the world. There are some people want to say that God only loves some of the world, that he only gave his only begotten son for part of the world. But that's not what God says. He says, for God so loved the world. Now, you also see in this verse the cry of the lost because the field is the world, according to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 38. The command of his word is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. The great commission of the church is to win the world. Now, I understand that in a congregation, especially this size, but it wouldn't have to even be this size, that there would be people who are just simply content with the fact they're going to heaven, and that's enough for them. They don't desire any more than that. They don't desire getting any closer to the Lord. They don't desire being responsible for anything whatsoever. And there are Christians that live and die, go to church many times throughout their life and have never one time even thought of the need and their part in fulfilling that need of reaching the world that God loved. And yet it says, for God so loved the world. When God loved, someone wrote, he loved a world. When he gave his son, he gave it for the world. When Jesus died, he died for the world. And God's vision is a world vision. For he says in Mark 16, 15, Go ye into all the world 
and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, as we look at this verse, we see a number of lessons in it. But as I think of Madison Baptist Church, last year, Madison Baptist Church, I mentioned this last week, last year, our church gave over $1 million to missions. Now, I know that there are an awful lot of charities out there and and, uh, that are always screaming for all types of things, for money and things like that. And that, those may be fine. Some of those are very nice things. But for the church, the job of the church is not to feed the world. job of the church is to reach the world. And when we're talking about the world, we're talking about the people of the world. Now, some may say, well, why would you put so much effort into the world in getting the gospel out? You see, with that missions money... We have right now 26 missionaries that are out of Madison Baptist Church. We've given 26 of our families. Actually, we've given more than that. Some are not missionaries anymore. Some are pastors uh, in different places around the United States, uh, other ministries as well. Plus, we support a number of other mission works. Uh, We have a vision for the world. The church's responsibility is to the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The scripture says in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there's no vision, the reality is too many have never lifted up their, li- uh, lifted up their eyes and looked on the world that Christ died for. And they have divorced themselves from any responsibility at all at reaching the world. By the way, may I say Huntsville's part of the world. Madison's part of the world. Madison County is part of the world. We really don't support missionaries to go to Madison County because we are the missionaries in Madison County. And we are the missionaries in Limestone County. We are the missionaries right here in North Alabama. Because, you see, we have looked up and we have seen some things. You see, there are some things that make us a world. We have a a world missions view. Number one, when I look at the scriptures, it gives us a world view. Again, in the passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When you study the scriptures, you find that that word world a number of times. We also find all nations. All the world, every creature, every kindred, and every tongue, every people, to the uttermost part of the earth, the scripture says. We are responsible for the world. It hasn't changed. I want you to get that. It's more than just the United States. It's in those countries that most of us have never been. And may never even go to, but we have a responsibility to reach in. And we can't go every place, but we can send people every place. But how are they going to go? How are they going to get there? You see, our perception, our looking is God's perception, the world. That means every race. That means every area of, uh, well, let's say every class. Now, I know some have more distinct classes than others, but it makes no difference how much money you make economically. Christ died for you. You need Christ. 
You see, the poor need Christ, the homeless need Christ, and the rich need Christ. Everybody needs Christ. Without Christ, there is absolutely no hope of heaven. It's for everyone. For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We see God's provision here, and it's for everybody. There's not a person here that this promise isn't for. It's for everybody. That whosoever believeth in him. I don't know. I may have told you I hate Calvinism. One of the ways you can tell that it's false is that it it says over and over again, God didn't mean what he said. That when God said world, he didn't mean world. He only meant the elect. That when God said all, he didn't mean all. That he only meant the elect. But over and over again, they have to change the very clear words of Scripture to make a theological heresy even sound reasonable. But it is the world. We've got a bunch of children back here we've picked up in a number of different places and bring them to Sunday school and church. We do that every week of the year. You say, why do you do that? Some of them will never hear about Christ in their home. This is their opportunity. We get them here to tell them about Jesus Christ so that they can have eternal life. I don't find anything in the Bible where a six-foot person is more important to God than a three-foot person. It's the same for everybody. has nothing to do with how much money they make, how much they can put in the offering plate. It has to do with the fact that they are a soul for whom Jesus Christ died. They need him. He is their only hope. The Bible says the spirit and the bride say come. Let him that hear us say come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Whosoever will. And God's plan is this. He that believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's it. It's the same for everybody. It's not a matter of how much money you put in the offering plate. It's not a matter of how many good works do you have behind you in your life. It's if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you get everlasting life. It's for the world. Now, we all practice faith in a number of things every day. For instance, there are many of you, you turn on a light switch, you expect a light to come on. You're really disappointed when it doesn't. You have faith in that switch. Because after all, nobody would walk in and try to turn the light on if you didn't believe that it was going to come on when you turned it on. You'd have lit a candle if you thought that the light switch wasn't going to work. Well, guess what? I know this. I know that all that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ Get everlasting life. 1971, at the age of 22, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save me. And the Bible says he did that very thing, gave me everlasting life. It's whosoever believeth in him. Anybody can believe in Jesus. He doesn't make you do it. It's a free gift. You see, when I look at the scriptures, I see that God has done all that he has done For you to have life. You know, people want to doubt that God is love because hell is real and people who die without Jesus burn in hell for eternity and they think somehow that that is a mark against God. No, wait, we already deserve hell. 
And God has done something so that nobody has to go there. Friend, I don't care who you are. If you die and go to hell, it'll be your fault, nobody else's. It won't be the preacher's fault. It won't be some deacon's fault. It won't be some Christian's fault who backslid. It'll be your fault because God offers you eternal life. You can go to heaven forever. Just come to Jesus. When I look at the scripture, the scripture is very plain. And God's promises should not perish, but have everlasting life. How long is everlasting? It's forever. I've heard people say, well, preacher, I I believe the Bible, but I don't believe in once saved, always saved. Well, then you're calling Jesus a liar. He said, those that believe on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And you say, but but wait just a minute, preacher. If uh, here's a person, he says he gets saved and then he goes and he commits adultery. You think that person's going to heaven? The problem with your reasoning is this. You're thinking in your mind, He doesn't deserve to go to heaven. But if he trusts Christ as Savior and doesn't commit adultery, he still doesn't deserve to go to heaven. You see, heaven has nothing to do with what you deserve. As a matter of fact, to get heaven, you've got to get something you don't deserve. Because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. And when I took Christ as my Savior, he gave me everlasting life. As a matter of fact, since you got your Bible open to John chapter 3, turn over just a little over a page and notice John chapter 5 and look at verse 24. Here Jesus says very clearly, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. No, wait. Notice very carefully, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. You trust Christ as Savior, he gives you everlasting life, and you shall not come into condemnation. What a promise. Turn over to chapter 6 and look at verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me... I will in no wise cast out. He says he won't throw you away. He said, but preacher, you mean just by for believing on him? Yeah, he paid your sin debt. You can't pay it. He paid the sin debt. Thank God he rose from the dead. The Bible says he was delivered for our offenses, was raised again for our justification. He's already paid the debt. When you receive it, you get the promise of God, which is eternal life. As a matter of fact, go over to John chapter 10. Notice beginning in verse 27. Again, Jesus is speaking. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. Now notice, and they shall never perish. Is that clear enough? But wait, he goes on. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And then he says, my father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. It's like when you get saved, he puts you in his hand. 
He's already said that he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. He can't, he won't throw you out. He says, you're in his hand. Nobody can take you out of his hand. And then he says, you're in the father's hand. Nobody can take you out of the father's hand. I and my father are one. How in the world could I die and go to hell? I am safe in him. He saved me. Now, I do believe this. I do believe that if you trusted Christ Christ as Savior today, you're not committing adultery today. Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You become a new creature. You see, God makes a change in a person when they get saved. That doesn't mean they're perfect. Doesn't mean that they might not mess up somewhere along the line. Just read about the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. I'm just simply saying that his work is perfect. It is complete. He was one sacrifice for sin forever. He paid the full debt. And when you trust him, he forgives you of all your sin, past, present, and future. Lady came up to a preacher and said, I I can understand how he died for my past sins, but how in the world did he die for my future sins? He said, Lady, all your sins were future when he died on the cross. And he paid the debt for all of them. Thank God for that. So when I look at the scripture, I have to be involved in worldwide missions. Not only that, when I look at the Savior, Paul says he loved me and gave himself for me. We get an idea about the greatness of the move that he made to come to this earth to die in our place on the cross of Calvary. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, when he declares, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see, God took upon himself flesh for the purpose of coming to this earth to die to pay our sin debt. When I look at what our Savior did, Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, He loved me and gave himself for me. To think about that, he loved you. He knew everything you'd ever do in your life. And yet he still went to the cross of Calvary and he died for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we see his commitment. He says in chapter 10 of verse, uh, verse 17 of the book of Hebrews, he says, in their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. His commitment to pay our sin debt, to offer forgiveness that takes our sins and he puts them away as far as the east is from the west. And he did it for everybody. And we look at his crucifixion. We see what he did. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, his own self bear our sin in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you're healed. And with regards to his blood, he says in 1 John 1, 7, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In 1 John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation. That word propitiation means he is the covering. He is the satisfaction. It has satisfied the Father. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I'm not preaching against Calvinism this morning. You know I am against it because they call John a liar as well as Jesus. He says that he's the propitiation, not just for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. He paid the full debt for everybody. Not only that, when I look at the saints, in, in uh, Acts chapter 16, you remember we had Paul trying to get the gospel out. He was going to go to Bithynia. God stopped him. He's going to go to Phrygia. God stopped him. And then the dream, he saw the man from Macedonia crying, come over and help us. He goes to Philippi and he wins people there to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see these, we see the pleading ones, we see the prepared ones that send us with the gospel. There are multitudes knowing something is missing and they just don't know what. They need to hear. They need to hear that there is a Savior. You remember the story in Acts chapter 8 about the Ethiopian eunuch? Here was a man who believed in the true God, but he was lost. We find him searching. He's reading in his Bible. He's reading from the book of Isaiah chapter 53, but he didn't understand it. God sends Philip the deacon up to his chariot, and he says to the eunuch, he said, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, how can I accept someone, some man show me? And so they stopped the chariot, and there Philip preached unto him Jesus And that eunuch trusted Christ as Savior because somebody cared enough to tell him there's a world out there. And I believe this, by the way, in Madison, Huntsville, Madison County, Alabama, in just Madison City alone. I believe that there are people behind doors in Madison, Alabama, who would get saved today if someone knocked on their door. The thing is, we don't know which door they're behind. That's why we go house to house. That's why we knock on the doors. We don't know who's there. You say, but what if they're a big biker with tattoos all over? I'll tell you what, sometimes the reason they look so tough is because they're so insecure. And it's amazing how many of them are just wishing someone would tell them how they can have peace with God. Oh, they need the Savior. When I look at the saints... By the way, there's a lot of people out there. Well, there's people that would like to go and can't afford to go. It's why we have missionaries go out and raise support to go to the mission field. Because they, there are people out there, they need the Savior. Uh, we don't charge for this. That's why we give so much to missions so the missionaries can go. That's our job to take care of it, to get the gospel out to them. When I look at the sinners... Bible says in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
He came to seek and to save the lost. It says the same thing in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 11. Matter of fact, if you look down here, back, go back to John chapter 3. Look at verse 18. What a statement. In verse 18, he says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not, underline the next three words, is condemned already. Do you get that? That lost person, they are condemned already. Once I was condemned, condemned to hell, condemned to pay the death that I deserve. Thank God. I took Christ as my Savior. I accepted his free pardon of forgiveness and eternal life. And thank God I am no longer condemned. I'm free. I've had people in the past tell me to go to hell. And I can gladly say to them, I can't. Hallelujah. I can't go to hell. You want to be able to say you can't go to hell? You need Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus told the story about the beggar and the rich man. Of course, the Bible says, and it came to pass, the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried in hell. He lift up his eyes, being in torments. Now, there's much more in that very graphic story. But I want you to get this. As that rich man in hell talks to Abraham, he says, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water that he may cool my tongue. Of course, Abraham said that can't happen. There's a great gulf fixed. And when he found out that he couldn't get any help and he wasn't getting out, he says, then send Lazarus that he may tell my five brethren, lest they also come to this place of torment. You realize people in hell are praying for their loved ones on earth to get saved? They are begging God. They don't want their loved ones to come to that awful place of torment. You realize if you had a brother or sister or mom and dad that died lost and are in hell today, I know people say, well, if I got saved, then I wouldn't be able to see them in hell. You won't see them in hell. They'll be screaming in torment. You'll be screaming in torment. You're not going to enjoy fellowship. You're not going to sit around with a beer in your hand and talk about the good old days. You will be in torment. But I guarantee if you've got a loved one in hell right now, they're crying out, please, someone go and tell my loved one how they can have Christ so they won't come to this place. They're begging. But you see, someone's not going to come back from the dead to tell. That already happened. Jesus is the one who came from the dead. He was... Killed on the cross of Calvary. He gave his life on the cross of Calvary. And he rose three days later. Delivered for our offenses. Raised again for our justification. When I look at sinners. Man that ought to move me to tell others. I've told the story before about my grandpa. And I won't go into great detail about that. But my grandpa. Man I loved him. I was so close to my grandpa. I spent a lot of time with my grandpa when I was a kid. I was a little over nine years old. 
I used to spend most every weekend out at the farm that my grandpa worked, my grandma and grandpa. When I was nine years old, my, my grandfather had emphysema. He wasn't doing well. That's back in the days when doctors made house calls and the doctor would come out from Sturgis to the farm, deal with my grandpa, try to get him to go into the hospital, and he wouldn't do it. And about 2 o'clock that morning, he began to say to my dad, he said, Dewey, I'll, uh, I'll go now. And he was coughing, just trying to get a breath, and he, he couldn't breathe. So my dad went to the phone, and back then, there was no dial on the phone. You simply picked up the, the, uh, the talking piece, and you waited for you know, Sarah from the Andy Griffith Show to come on and put you through to whoever you're trying to call. But it was 2 o'clock in the morning, and my dad held that phone up for 20 minutes before the operator finally came on. And by that time, my grandpa had gone out into eternity. And I got the news the next morning that my grandpa, the best friend of my life, the one I look forward to being with more than any other on the planet, my grandpa died. Now, my grandpa had nothing to do with God. There was a brief time when my dad was growing up that my dad went to a country church not too far from the farm. When he came home that afternoon from going to that country church, he began to talk about what he'd heard in the Sunday school lesson. And my grandpa said, we're not going to have any of that. We're not going to have a blankety-blank preacher in our house. And he forbid my dad to go back. He was a curser. He was a drinker. He's into all that. Now he's a good moral man. Hard-working man, he was all that, but he was lost. He didn't have Christ as his Savior. He died lost. That means since 1959. Think about that. 64 years. My grandpa's been in hell, crying for one drop of water to cool his tongue, and it's never coming. Did you get that? It's never coming. He's in hell. He's not getting out. You say, preacher, how can you tell that? Because it's the truth. I can't do anything to reach my grandpa. He died lost as it is appointed on the man wants to die after this judgment. He died lost. And he is in torment today and will be throughout eternity. That's the teaching of the scripture. You see, because of sinners, because of what their, their condition, their condemnation, we want to see that they all get the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then it says, but how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How can they get saved if they don't hear about the Lord Jesus Christ? There was a good friend of mine, a missionary out in New Mexico to the Navajo Indians. He and his brother went out to Navajo land to try to win the Indians to Christ. One Sunday, they had a precious, dear, older lady who trusted Christ as Savior. And she was so excited about it. She was, she was thrilled about it. 
She had trusted Christ. She had eternal life, but she got to thinking about that. She went to one of the missionaries and she said, uh, said his name and said, listen, because this is true, all of my family, my mom, my dad, my, my, my uncles and aunts, my grandma and grandfather, they're all in hell. And then she said, how long have you had this wonderful news? And they told her, we've had it for centuries. She cried, well, why didn't somebody, why didn't somebody come and tell them? Oh, yeah, Christians back then are like Christians today. We're too caught up watching our favorite shows. We're caught up making sure that we keep our bucket list while they die and go to hell. Why do we have the world in mind? Why worldwide missions when we look at sinners and see where they're going? It moves us. By the way, do you realize Chattanooga, Tennessee, I don't know if the number's the same today, but I know that there was a time a couple of decades ago where for every thousand people in Chattanooga, Tennessee, there was a Baptist church. Now, Baptists aren't the only ones that preach the gospel. I understand that. But for every 1,000 people, do you realize that there are more Baptist churches in Huntsville, Alabama, that preach the gospel than in many total countries? As a matter of fact, we could go down to Latin America, and in Latin America, we could find cities of over 100,000 people with not one church preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Why do we call on our people for worldwide missions? Why do we call on them to give? Why do we call on them to go? Because sinners haven't heard. And without Christ, they can't go to heaven. There's another site that I look at that stirs me up, and that's the judgment seat of Christ. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, I'm for having fun in church. I enjoy being with God's people, and I think we ought to be able to have fun. But I'm going to tell you what, I think we've gotten to the place where we're, we don't enjoy church unless we're having fun. But church is not the place of fun. Church is supposed to be the place of truth. And the truth isn't always fun. It's not something that you're going to leave laughing about. I hope you don't. If you do, something's really wrong with you. Notice he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. I need to turn there myself. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now notice, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You say, 
Paul, why do you give yourself to try to win people to Christ? Why do you knock yourself out? Why do you put up with all the trials that you go through? He says, because I'm going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. The one who died for me, the one who saved me. And I'm going to give an account for how I have spent my Christian life. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It'll be a day of reckoning, so then every one of us should give account of himself to God. Uh, Guess what? No one else is going to give an account for you. You're going to give an account for you at the judgment seat of Christ. Christian, you're going to give an account for what you've done for world missions. What you've done to reach the lost. I know you can't go to every place, but you can give to send people to every place. It's a day of reward or loss of rewards. Every man's works shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive reward. If any man's work be burned, he shall suffer loss, though he himself shall be saved. Yet so is by fire. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 13 through 15. But let me show you a verse that really ought to tug at your at your heart. Go over to the book of Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3. This is one you need to meditate sometime this afternoon. Sit down and just think about what God is saying. Ezekiel chapter 3, notice verse 18. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. Now underline the rest of this. But his blood will I require at thine hand. The day of reward, standing at the judgment seat of Christ, We'll give an account for how many we've let die, lost, all about us without ever doing a thing to warn them. Now, thank God it can be a day of rejoicing, the judgment seat. For those who've been busy about trying to win those that Christ died for to him. Even even though God gave the command to all the world, he gave it specifically to his disciples Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. They're to carry the message. But now I want you to think about this. The disciples early on stayed in Jerusalem. They saw a lot of people saved in Jerusalem. But they all just wanted to stay right there. And so in Acts chapter 8, God sent a man by the name of Saul in the city of Jerusalem to lead in persecution. And with his great persecution, the believers were scattered everywhere and they went everywhere preaching the word. It's a shame that it took persecution to get them to spread the gospel where he wanted it spread to the world. Yes, Jerusalem was a good place to witness, but they were to go out from there to tell the world. It wasn't the world. They didn't do it. I read a story about Alexander Duff. He was a veteran missionary to India. He had gotten pretty ill in his old age. He stood before the, he returned to Scotland, stood before the general assembly of his denomination, and he made an appeal for more to surrender 
to go to Scotland or to go to India with the gospel of Christ. He got no response and he fainted, was carried off the platform by the doctor. When he finally came around, he asked the people that were standing around him, where am I? Doctor said, lie still, you've had a heart attack. And then realizing where he was at, he said, but I haven't finished my appeal yet. Take me back. I must finish. The doctor said, no, you need to lie still. You could die. But finally he insisted and they carried him back to the platform. And he stood up weakly. But he continued his appeal this way. He said, when Queen Victoria calls for volunteers for India, hundreds of young men respond. But when King Jesus calls, no one goes. And then he paused again. The auditorium was silent. He says, is it true that the fathers and mothers of Scotland had no more sons to give to India? And again he paused, and still it was silent. So then he said, very well then, though I'm aged and sick, I'll go back to India myself. I can lie down on the banks of the Ganges and I can die and thereby let people know in India that there was one man in Scotland who loved them enough to give his life for them. And with that again, it was very silent. One young man stood up and yelled out, I'll go. Another from another part of the auditorium, I'll go. Another, I'll go. Another, I'll go. I remember my first missions conference at Highland Park Baptist Church when I went to Tennessee Temple University. Their missions conferences were absolutely awesome. They would always have over 100 missionaries there. And every morning and every evening, they would have those 100 missionaries or more up in the choir loft And there would be a time of them getting testimonies, sometimes answering questions and so on. It was very moving. But understand, this was my first time to be at a missions conference at Highland Park. All those missionaries up there, and they were introducing some of them, and a couple gave testimonies. And then they introduced a young man who had gone as a missionary to Peru. He was home for a brief time because his wife caught a disease down there. She had been very, very sick. She was expecting a child. But the child died, and so did his wife. And he said, you ask what I'm going to do next. He said, I'm going back to Peru. He said, I've given a wife and a child for Peru. God forbid that I should turn back now. You see, this thing about worldwide missions, it's not so we can tell everybody, hey, we gave a million dollars to missions. No, it's because I've seen the scripture and we're responsible to give that and far more if we can. And it's not just about giving of the money. It is about people surrendering to go as missionaries. Maybe you know that Brother Tony Stark was the first one to surrender to go out from Madison Baptist Church and went out from the church. He was the founding pastor of the church, and he went.
And then Brother Bob Cook went as a missionary. And then Larry Nelson went as a missionary. Eventually, the first seven missionaries that we had all went to Uganda, Africa. But then we had another go to Korea. And we had missionaries then going, surrendering and going to other places. So now we have 26 missionaries around the world in different places. Some countries, for instance, in Brazil, we have six missionaries out of our church. In Mexico, we have five. In Spain, I believe, we have four missionaries out of Madison Baptist Church in Spain. And we've got other individual countries to where they're at. Why? I mean, we're sending a million dollars to missions. Why are people? Because we are commanded, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we are committed to that. You know, I like to make people comfortable, but we're not about making people comfortable. We're about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's always our main focus. Well, why don't you do this? Other people do it. Well, maybe we don't do that because it doesn't further the getting of the gospel out like it should. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. The truth is, the possibility here is for everyone here either to be a missionary or they are a mission field. We may not be called to a foreign land, but we are still called to try to win the people around here to Jesus Christ. But if there's one here that's lost, they need Christ or they'll die and go to hell. Like every other lost sinner that's ever walked on this planet, if they don't come to Jesus, hell is what awaits them. I pray they'd come to the Savior who loved them so much, he died to pay their sin debt on Calvary and rose from the dead three days later. Have your way this morning, I pleaded in Jesus' name.